As today's guest puts it, high-stakes situations demand courageous leadership. Plus, as we've come to learn, the right message for stakeholders on the outside and inside. Whether you're an executive player in the world of mergers and acquisitions or simply interested in how deals work and why some are far more successful than are others, well, you're in the right place. We're talking with Constance Derricks, author of High Stakes Leadership and co-author of The Merger Mindset on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. My programs include guidance for message leadership with groups of professionals, as well as messaging transformation across an organization. On this podcast, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is available from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, the audio version on Audible and Apple, basically wherever fine business books are sold. You can also find a sample on my website, jimcar.com. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. This episode is about the high-stakes world of mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures, and how messaging and culture are often more important to ultimate success than our integrating technology or financial reporting. I first heard our guest at a consulting convention several years ago. It was easy to recognize that Constance Derricks has a clear, no-nonsense yet empathetic approach to executive clients. Her point of view has been shaped by her early career in the brokerage world, but especially by her work after she returned to school to earn a PhD in psychology. Constance worked in four hospitals, helping people recover from disasters and aid families in crisis. Today, she is a coach, consultant, speaker, and author of High Stakes Leadership, plus the co-author with Linda Henman of The Merger Mindset. Constance, it is a delight to welcome you into the Manager Message podcast because in large part, not only your, your expertise and your study, but your experience in the momentum and the strategy and the implementation of mergers and acquisitions. So here's the provocative, obvious question. The evidence is over a couple of generations, Constance, that most mergers and acquisitions fail to meet expectations, or at least the hopes that are stated at the outset. So why do executives, why do financiers, boards of directors, leaders 
continue to look to M&A as a means for growth and thinking that they can beat the odds? Well, two reasons. One is that the idea that you can acquire another company and acquire technology, customers, a unique supply chain, if there is such a thing, and do it rapidly is very appealing. And most people listening to this know that organic growth is hard. It takes investment. You know, it doesn't bear fruit quickly. And there's this notion that, oh, we'll buy it and you know, the famous line you hear a lot is one plus one will equal three or five or 18 or whatever it happens to be. The other reason people do it is because it's a deceptively simple when you're looking at it from afar. It's also deceptively simple because the people doing deals, well, they are generally smart, experienced, successful You know, they've got backers, they have people, investment bankers or other investors egging them on. And I use that word egging for a reason. They tend to oversimplify things. They tend to get overly optimistic and not because they're not bright, but because they're human beings. And that's what human beings do. They tend to be overconfident more often than not. You have this unique perspective. A lot of the work that you do is at the very high level when deals are being considered, when they're being done, maybe when things aren't going quite the way that they should. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Let's follow up. Exactly. They say, oh, maybe we do need some help. We need need an expert perspective after all. You use this term egging on. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what are the forces that kind of generate this snowball momentum around the transaction itself, the parties who are involved and how easy it is to get caught up in that. Yeah, that's a really good angle, Jim, that you just took on this topic. And it's not discussed enough. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, if you're a good leader, you don't really want to blame other people for your decision. But there's a whole audience and there are interested parties that you know, will encourage sometimes activist investors who end up with board seats can really pressure a company to go one way or the other. Sometimes it's a large investment group that maybe owns or owns majority stake in a company that's looking for an exit. And they want this deal done. And I actually worked on one. The company shall remain nameless and you'll see why in a moment. But it was owned by a private group of investors They'd extracted a lot of wealth, you know, and that's their right to do. They're the owners. But they kind of pressured a deal to happen, and the deal did happen. The CEO is a very good CEO and a very good guy. I still know him. And he did the best he could, but it failed, and they ended up in bankruptcy. They called me. They called me after it was on fire. The cow was out of the barn. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But then you have, let's say you've got a public company, but you've got investment bankers that you have relationships with, of course. And sometimes they can actually exert pressure. And if you think about how they're generally compensated, there's a reason why. Other reasons have to do with leaders who have a good relationship with one another. So currently the deal between uh, BB&T and SunTrust Bank SunTrust base here in Atlanta, in the town where I live. That deal is happening right now. And uh, there's a Financial Times writer 
named Andrew Hill, I think is his name, who described it as a bromance. And I'm sure the two CEOs were, they either didn't read it, don't care, or were insulted. I'm not sure which. But what the writer is talking about is the fact that leaders are human beings. And sometimes two leaders get to know one another, they like and respect each other, and they see an opportunity. And once everybody around them knows they're planning to make this work, you know, sort of things have a way of lining up and it can be pretty hard to be a naysayer in that group. So those are just a few of the many human uh, foibles. I like to say that, you know, perception, cognition, and emotion influence decisions And uh, most leaders don't like to hear that, but it happens to be true. And that's all the financial models and the net present value calculations. Right. And the promises of 24% system integrations and (laughs) and all of that. Um, Right. You know, those are guesses, folks. My very first big boy wearing a suit and tie job was actually with a, a merchant bank in New York City. I was back in my 20s. I certainly did not know what I was doing. But it was interesting to see from the standpoint of those who would finance. And and my unit worked a lot on what we call structured finance. It was a lot of financing, merger and acquisition activity. And we were looking actively for candidates that we could go and say, hey, if you you put these pieces together or you sell to an employee stock ownership plan, or if you make a bid for so-and-so, you're going to make this kind of money. And certainly there was the pressure of getting deals, creating legacies, making a name for yourself. And I can tell you, message manager listeners, that some of the assumptions and projections with, you know, say, hey, Jim, go see how the numbers work. I don't have any idea. So you put some projections down and they bore almost no resemblance to reality. We kind of try to get things to look a certain way. But I think, as you say, the human elements are so important. And I can imagine you have executives who are in the same industry, say banking, big time commercial banking or financial services, as you mentioned with SunTrust, BB&T, they're going to know each other. A lot of them were went to school in the same place. They run across each other all the time. People serve on others' boards of directors. And so there really are a lot of relationship issues here that may be, I would suppose, pushing toward more M&A activity. Right. And so what happens is that people who have familiarity, maybe they went to Harvard Business School together, you know, and they hung out together. Maybe they were in the same fraternity in undergrad or something like that. So they mistake that familiarity for deep knowledge of one another's business. So one deal that I worked on was with an organization that had a decades-long relationship with another organization, such that one was actually licensing intellectual property to the other. So it was a pretty close relationship. And they were about to do the deal. And they I met with the uh, two chairmen, actually, at the same time the three of us met. And they said, well, you know, it's going to be pretty easy because we know each other. And I looked at them and said, are you sure? And they <laughs> looked at me like I was a little bit of an idiot. And I said, before you proceed, let's find out for sure how well you understand each other. And they said, well, okay. So I did some work for them. I won't go into the details, but I did some work. And I came back and showed them with data that they were not alike at all. And in fact, this was going to be a source of big trouble for them. Now, to their credit, they believed me. They saw the data. 
they took it to heart. And we made a plan about how they were going to mitigate and work around these differences. And it was, it took a lot of guts and it took a year and a half, but they did it. And the organization thrived as a result. So sometimes we think that familiarity means we know one another pretty well, but actually how much do you really know about another company and how it runs? Usually you don't know as much as you wish you could. Sure. And I will, in a moment, we're going to focus a bit on the messaging, the communication aspect of what tends to separate that minority of cases that do tend to be successful, the one you just mentioned, from those who don't beat the odds and fail to meet expectations. Because I think there's an important point that's here that we can all learn from. I was going to ask you before we get into the specifics of kind of messaging and communication constants, if there are Certainly, the example that you just talked about there in Atlanta, SunTrust and BB&T, mm-hmm. banks are historically active in mergers and acquisitions. Yes. They want deposits. They want market share. They want geographic locations. And there's a well-understood kind of mechanism like, eh, we'll probably lose X percent of accounts and here's what we'll do. The pieces do tend to fit together conceptually pretty well most of the time. Are there other industries or what are the characteristics of M&A activity in particular industries where there you see maybe a better chance of success, maybe because the cultures or the technology or the geographies fit together better versus some others where they're really going uphill to try to get deals done? I think that there are some that appear to be more logical on the surface. And those tend to be in industries where scale is very important. So, you know, AT&T and Bell South, right? Telephone, wireless, blah, blah. You know, well, I was a customer of one of those when they, you know, they got broken apart and then, you know, now they're pretty much back together. But I was a customer during one of those and it was a, a complete and unmitigated nightmare as a customer. So you would think, you know, you're going to get, advantages of scale, you're going to have more customers, but it was chaos because what they did was what a lot of organizations do. They come together, they hire a big consulting firm and they start welding pipes together and they look at deals from a very, or they look at integration technically, you know, got to get the accounting systems on the same platform. You know, we got to, we have to be able to print consolidated financials, pretty reasonable thing. However, if everybody's got their head down and they're internally focused, then the customers sort of get lost. I think that it's not really the industry per se that drives it. It's more what's the rationale. But in general, cultures are what can really sink a deal. And you could be in the exact same industry. And I know I used to be with a global consulting firm and we looked, we were in conversation with other firms about joining or us acquiring them. And it was always the culture fit that made us stop short. That was probably good. The best deals, the ones that work the best, are where you've got a good rationale, a good deal thesis, you've got good data, and you've got a leader who says, in order to make this deal work, we need to operate this way. So technical operation, sales, marketing, all of that, but who also says, we're not going to choose one or the other culture. We're going to create a new culture to drive the strategy of the newly formed company. And then 
goes after that. And I've seen the first deal I ever worked on was Wreck-It Van Kieser in Europe. And that's exactly what the CEO did. His name's Bart Becht. And the share price doubled two years post-deal. Mm-hmm. And I, I had... I was a newbie. I was a green pea M&A consultant, but I had the sense to recognize I was in the presence of a good leader and I watched what he did. And I helped him, of course. I was there to help him, but I, th- I think I got more out of it than he did. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I did <laughs> because he is very experienced and was a very successful leader. You mentioned having one good, clear, motivated leader. Isn't that a problem sometimes though, especially if you get mergers of bigger organizations and it seems like they're oftentimes, even the phrase that will come out sometimes is, oh, it's generally a merger of equals, which seems to be an impossibility. (laughs) But even so, even when you have one acquiring the other, there's, okay, this, we're going to acquire you, but you get two board seats and it looks kind of like a committee more so than a leadership team. How do you get around that part? That's right. Well, I can't. As a consultant, I can't. If people are put in seats as consolation prizes or, you know, well, you know, we can't get rid of Jim. He's been here so long. This isn't about Jim. And I'm sorry I use that name. That's fine. <laughs> Jim, you, you get the home version of being acquired. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, let's say uh, George over here. You know, we can't get rid of George. He's been here a long time. This is not about George. It's the wrong criteria. The criteria is not, I don't have the heart or the stomach to give somebody a package and wish them well. So I'm going to find a slot for them. And that happens. And it doesn't happen again. It's not because people are dumb. It's because they're human and people have relationships. And it's sometimes hard to let go. It's often easier to let go of people that have been there shorter than longer. And it's not just because somebody made a rule, you know, last in, first out. It's for emotional reasons. And I see this a lot. But if you have good criteria that's rational and you've got a good process with some independent people helping you choose. And I mean, people who know how, not amateurs who think they understand people like an expert, then you can do very well, but there will be pain. There always is, right? With major change and disruption. I want to, let's focus a bit here for our last part of the conversation, Constance, about messaging, especially messaging from the various leadership management groups involved Mm -hmm. with this. And it Mm -hmm. is messy and squishy and all of that. I will refer message manager listeners from one of Constance's books, the one she wrote with Linda Henman called The Merger Mindset. And you make, I have a nice kind of clear conceptual model about three elements that go into where value is actually created and not eroded through uh, the M&A process. And you talk about clear objectives and discernment. And then the third piece, which is I think where a lot of the good versus not good, messaging comes in is what you call undiluted pragmatism. And I'm mm-hmm. going to pull a little, just a couple of lines here from the book and let you talk about that a bit from your experience. You say, making deals work takes what we call undiluted pragmatism. We define this as the ability to simplify as much as possible, but not to the point where meaning is lost. And you say, leaders evidence powerful pragmatism when they distill important messages into memorable cogent and repeatable messages. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. 
But in the momentum behind a deal, in the trying to get things done, I'm just going to guess, Constance, that where this works well, that the undiluted pragmatism, the knowing what the messages are going to be mm-hmm. to all stakeholders inside and outside, right. that goes well when that isn't just decided upon when the deal's announced. Right. I mean, ideally, you want to think about those things ahead of time, but it can work if you sort of wake up a little late and say, oh, oops, what are we going to do? The timing of it is one aspect, but the most important aspect is who's doing that work. And a very large reason why deals fail, even deals that are good on paper, is because leaders don't retain authority over strategic decisions. So let's say you are thinking about messaging and you go out and you hire a firm and the firm comes in and they say, here's our methodology. Here's what we do. And you like it as a leader. You're like, oh, I like that. That's really good. And then essentially you take your hands too much off the wheel, right? And so people go and they do these things. The human resources people get involved, right? Because it's all about the people. And pretty soon you've got muck. So you need experts in communication to help you, but the meaning and the essence of what you're trying to say has to come for the leaders. So I'll give you another example of a situation where I was involved was a company in the automobile financing business. So they do floor plans for dealers, right? So a car dealer has a lot of cars on their lot and they don't own all those cars outright because who could do that? doesn't make any sense. Ties up capital. So one company here in Atlanta bought a financing company and they were creating this new thing. And three of the top leaders and I got in a room and we basically agreed that we weren't leaving the room until we identified as simply as we could, Occam's razor, make things as simple as you can, but not simpler. Or maybe Einstein said that. We're not leaving until we have the core of that message. And I didn't come up with it. They came up with it. Dealer financing simplified. Boom. Bam. And that drove all kinds of decisions from that point forward. And that's a, it's called Next Gear Capital. They came up with a name too, oh, by the way. <laughs> they clever. came, it's very clever. The business has done well. It's privately owned, so I'm not at liberty to say to give a lot of details, but it was the leaders taking responsibility for big strategic decisions. Now, once they came up with the simplified statement, a lot of things happened that other people did. But you see the distinction rather than abdicating or basically outsourcing something that that important, they really kept their hands on the wheel and it worked out quite well. I really like that example, Constance, and a couple things just at, at first hearing of that that I noticed. So when you said it was dealer financing simplified, that winds up being a promise and a bit of a North Star. So it's right. both, it's a promise to the customers of this combined entity, this new thing, but it also is an internal promise and yes. an internal standard so that we must deliver on something that actually is simpler. The result of putting all these things together can't be 
more bureaucracy. We can't be slower, more expensive, harder to figure out, less focused on the customer. In fact, this is what we have to return to time and again. And you can imagine that as implementation or customer experience decisions are made down the road by middle managers or people in different units, then they always can come back to that and say, are we actually doing this in a simpler way for our customers? Right. No, you're absolutely right. You can't be in a company. And by the way, when I heard you say back to me what I said, I realized I made a mistake. It was it's inventory financing, simplified, not dealer. Okay. So I need to correct myself on that. And that goes to prove that I'm not the one that came up with it, right? <laughs> I, mean, I was the catalyst that said to the leaders, these very talented leaders, you have to do this. Now, you may not, it may get wordsmith afterwards, but you have to give people the central meaning. Well, you know, it stuck. But you're right. If you work in that company and you're a complicator or a bureaucrat, sorry. (laughs) Or if it's too wrapped up in a vision, you know, or we are redefining a (laughs) world-class inventory financing experience for the next millennia, something along those lines, which becomes unmeaningful. Right. Again, whether it be, however it was, like inventory management simplified, that winds up being, I think, the characteristic of a message that is both coherent on the outside, but also, again, serves as a meaningful goal on the inside. Right. And it tells people who work in a company like that, that pragmatism reigns supreme, right? Mm -hmm. Our objective is to improve the condition of people in the automotive business. That's what we do. And we want to make their lives as simple as we can and support them as much as we can. You know, not sort of unlike the technology that we're using right now to record this, where, you know, the software was a little fussy. It didn't want me to use Safari. And I'm an Apple person, you know, like, <laughs> like you want me to use Chrome? What? Are you? <laughs> okay. I mean, I have it, but um, I had to break my own habit and do, you know, a little finagling. We'll pull back the curtain just a little bit here, listeners, on how all this this magic works. One of the things, and you're in the world of major organizational change and advising on M&A work. We've also spoken here on the podcast to uh, an expert on how big organizations sell new products when that actually happens well, and most of the time it does not. And I think in both instances, there's an overlap. What we tend to do is underestimate the amount of change that our decisions require from other people. For change, if I'm selling a customer a new product, that requires them to do things. And no matter how great we think our stuff is, um, no matter how much we think the technology, the systems, the markets, and the cultures of two companies together how much sense that makes and how great it can be, it still is putting a lot of fear, anxiety, and change into the human beings who have to deal with that. The example that Constance just shared is we have used a particular app for all of this in about, oh, 10 minutes before uh, (laughs) we actually started recording because it requires uh, someone to have a certain browser. And and I would think that's not a big deal. Everybody can get it. But sometimes the technology isn't 
perfect in uh-huh. talking right, to each other. Right. So. It was temporarily uncooperative. but So thinking through what you found, is particularly on the messaging part of all this, Constance, using that as an example, the good deals, and I say the deals that meet expectations and where you have a good, healthy, bigger organization going forward, that requires change of the leadership. It requires change in the middle managers and the worker bees all all the way through, and it requires some changes from customers themselves. So any guidance in terms of, again, what you've seen for the messaging and the implementation, the practical steps of those instances where it does work? Maybe it's not going to be smooth and perfect, but ultimately on the other side of that year, two years down the road of making sure that the message and the activities stay on course. Right. So a lot of times when deals are in between that, you know, letter of intent and due diligence going through that process before the deal is sealed, there's a lot of uncertainty and people are not afraid of change as much as they are afraid of not knowing. Like uncertainty is anxiety provoking. Just imagine you're waiting for the results of your MRI right? Like that waiting period is not fun. It can produce a lot of anxiety. So a mistake that people make, and I hear this over and over, and I just, I'll grab a leader and whisper it to them in their office. Do not tell people that nothing's going to change. Don't tell them that. Things are going to change, but right now you don't know what, and you don't know when, and you don't know who. So just say things are going to change. But remind them, and this is why that core message that you and I were talking about a minute ago is so important. You have to have a memorable, powerful, believable message like inventory financing simplified. And you say, as a company, this is what we're going to be pursuing. And we want every good person that we can get to help us get there. And that's a very conceptual message, but that's really all you've got at a certain point. Once you know what your process is going to be for making decisions, you can share that. You know, once processes begin, you can share that. I have seen deals where very little changed, very few people were changed out, and the changes were more cultural. And sometimes when you try to change a culture, you realize there are people that don't fit and you have to make changes. But it's not necessarily the case that you have to have wholesale change. I've seen some where very few things have changed. People-wise, you know, technology and technical things sometimes. And then I've seen one example where 60% of the people in an acquired company had to be let go. 60%. That was painful. But the result was the new company thrived. And it wasn't a comment on, it wasn't that the people were bad. It's just that they didn't fit in the new world order. They didn't have the skills. So these things range quite widely, but they all these decisions have to be predicated on what is it we're trying to do? What is our deal thesis? What are we trying to deliver? And that's why all this decision stuff matters almost more than industry. She is Constance Derricks. She has seen, if not all, she'd seen a lot <laughs> behind the- The good, the bad, and the, the ugly. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what works and what doesn't from a practical standpoint as well as a strategic one. It's been a great view behind the curtain with you. Constance, I think there are lessons here for 
anyone who's running a business, thinking about how to grow, whether you're acquiring or considering it, or you might be on the other side of it, understanding how all these things work in dealing in a complex organization with any sort of major change going on. Can you uh, remind us about some of your books, uh, website, and ways that we can continue to learn from you? Well, it's always a great joy to think that people learn from me. And, you know, sometimes they tell me they do, and it's really wonderful. So my first book is called High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment, and Fortitude. And that book came about because I am often asked to come in and help when something's on fire. I like doing that. And then the merger mindset, how to get it right in the high stakes world of mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures. And some people have told me that even if they're not an executive, even if they're not making deal decisions or integration decisions, they have benefited from knowing a little bit more about what goes on so that they can have a bit more control of their career. And that's wonderful to hear. My website is actually myname.com. And that brings us to another interesting pull back the curtain thing. My first name is spelled the normal way, but my last name is Belgian and it's spelled D-I-E-R-I-C-K-X. So ConstanceDerix.com. And uh, my husband's grandfather came from Antwerp, Belgium. And when we got married, I changed my name to that complicated name. So that you, you, you might think you learned something about just how, you know, off my rocker I am, but I love having the name. It is how they spell it in Belgium. And I like having a, a unique name, even though I have to spell it a lot for people. It is terrific. And I'll tell you, message managers, first of all, of course, we'll put all these links in the show description. So you're just one click away. And Constance is both a PhD, as am I, but her last name may be even more of a consonant explosion (laughs) than is mine. The great benefit, of course, is that if you spell either of our names in Google search, we will own the first 10 pages. That's right. It's been a delight, Constance, uh, to give you give us clarity and good humor about all of this. Thank you so much for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for creating the opportunity for us to talk together about the invaluable part that messaging plays in making deals work. I'm so pleased that you joined the podcast today, whether you are a returning message manager or perhaps this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few moments, tap subscribe, and offer your five-star rating and review. That helps the robots let other professionals know about this podcast so they can find value as well. There's another free business messaging resource available to you, one you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week. It's a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up at jimcar.com, J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H. And while you're there, I'm sure you know of a professional association or a company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow their businesses. On my website, you'll see a page for speaking, as well as a related page just for event professionals. Those are the people who need help finding speakers and other ideas for making in-person events memorable and valuable. Love to talk with you or with them about your upcoming events. 
You may email me directly at jim at jimcar.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. I look forward to the conversation. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.